Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. We're going to look there, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to start reading verse 3 through verse 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory." In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word, as we look at what it is that your spirit has superintended at the hand of the Apostle Paul for the sake of the church. As he superintends that on behalf of the head of the church, Christ Jesus, so that Christ's church might be edified. So that the nations might be evangelized. So that you, Father, would be exalted. We pray that we would hear what your Spirit says to the church. That you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would illumine our minds and our hearts so that we might rejoice, so that we might join Paul in his praise of you, our Father, for this Trinitarian salvation that is ours in your Son and by the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is our ninth week in our series on the Trinity. Um, The last eight weeks... What I did is I walked through the Gospels and Acts in various passages showing you the doctrine of the Trinity and attempting to explain to you the doctrine of the Trinity. And I, want, I, I have been wanting you to see that our God is three in one, one in three. Our God is triune. And we continue that series today. But we take a bit of a turn as we head into the epistles, I told you I would walk through all of the authors of, scriptures, of the Scripture, and I will, and we are turning to the epistles. But, but today we're taking a bit of a turn, and, and what do I mean by a bit of a turn and as we approach this doctrine of the Trinity? Um, when I was in Los Angeles several years ago, I went down to a conference, actually, that I, I'm going to tomorrow for the day. It's a two-day conference, but I'm just going for the day tomorrow. But I, I went down to this conference um, few years ago, and the speaker was a man named Dr. G.K. Beale. He is one of the, the preeminent biblical theologians alive today. Um, his specialty is particularly in the New Testament use of the Old Testament. And so I went to um, get my exegetical and Greek nerd kind of thing exercised. Do you follow? And so I went down there, and as he was talking about his ministry, um, as he studies the Scripture and looks at the connections between the New Testament and the way it uses the Old Testament, he says he'll be at home studying and he'll come to a realization about how an apostle is using the Old Testament passage. He'll get all excited and he'll run to his wife and say to his wife, look what I found, look what I found in the text, look at this connection. And he says, my wife always looks at me and says, so what? In other words, 
So what? What difference does that make? How do I understand the Christian life, Christian salvation, Christian worship differently as a result of that discovery that you've made? And that's really the question we come to today. The so what of the Trinity. In one sense, I shouldn't have to ask so what. And here's what I mean by that. The Lord is triune. So what? He's triune. It's a little bit like saying, um, my wife is Teresa, and she's five foot nine, and she's got brown hair, and she's this age, and she was born in this city, and, and here's what I know all about her. And somebody says, so what? What difference does that make to your marriage? Well, she's not a generic woman. She's a specific woman. It makes every difference to my marriage, doesn't it? And this is the same thing when we come to the question of the Trinity. So what? In one sense, we shouldn't even have to answer that question because that's specifically who our God is. However, um, there are a lot of applications, a lot of ways in which our triune God informs what Christianity is, who we are, how we worship, what salvation is, how we understand creation, providence. I could go down the list. Now, I'm not saying we haven't seen any of that so what earlier in the series, just like I'm not saying we won't continue to see evidence for the Trinity as we go forward. What I'm saying is we're now taking a turn in the direction of the so what. My goal over the next several weeks is to contend that our Trinitarian Lord is necessary to our whole understanding of Christianity. In other words, our Trinitarian Lord is necessary to our understanding of creation, providence, Salvation, assurance, suffering, prayer, perseverance, preaching, the sacraments, the church, good works, mission. Did you just catch that list? I mean, I could list more, but I'm contending that your whole Christian life is built upon the foundational truth of who this triune God is. And here's where, if you will, the rubber of the glorious doctrine of the Trinity meets the road of your life. Let me give you a short sampling of Trinitarian doctrine in the Christian life. Now, you're going to have to walk with me through several passages, and this is just brief. I'm only giving you a few examples. But look at Romans chapter 1. Let's start there, the first book after Acts. Romans chapter 1, keep your hand in Ephesians, we'll come back. But Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning who? His son. The gospel of God concerning his son, who descended from David according to the flesh. This is speaking of his humanity and his humiliation. And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. This is speaking of his vindication, of his exaltation. By who? The Spirit. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, Paul begins the book of Romans in a Trinitarian fashion. He can't even start the letter to the church at Rome and talk about who he is. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now I better define that. He can't even get to describing who he is without launching into a doctrine of the Trinity. If you're going to understand him, you have to understand his commitment to the triune Lord. Look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Again, I'm skipping over a lot of stuff. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, here's Paul talking about justification and largely assurance. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, forgiven our sins, declared righteous through the instrumentality of faith in the object of our faith, Christ, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, reconciliation with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's God and the Lord Jesus Christ both being mentioned. Through him, we have also obtained access through Christ. We've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings 
Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Why not? Because, listen, God's love has been poured into our hearts through who? The Holy Spirit has been given to us. As Paul wraps up justification and drives into assurance in the midst of suffering, Paul brings you back to the Trinity. Look at chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. Verse 12, so then, brother, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with them, in order that we may also be glorified with them. Here's Paul getting into the fact that there is no condemnation. And, and really, a long, the second longest section in the, in the New Testament on the Holy Spirit, getting into our Trinitarian adoption and sanctification and understanding of suffering once again. Now go down to verse 26 of Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not what to know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Look at his next phrase. And, this, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of who? His son. In order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So in the midst of suffering, you don't even know what to pray. The Spirit, who is God, therefore knows the mind of God, and who is God, therefore knows your heart better than you do, prays within you according to the will of God for what you need. And ultimately, what you need is what he then goes on to say when he says, God's working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And what's his purpose? For those whom he foreknew, he also what? predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son so that we might be the firstborn, the, if you will, of the prototokos, we might be the, that he might be the firstborn, sorry, of many brothers, that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. So Jesus, the son, is whose image we're being conformed to by the spirit to the praise of the father in the midst of suffering. Now, Romans 15. Romans 15 Paul, speaking about his plan to visit Rome, his distraction with, and I, I mean this, a gloriously good distraction with the mission work he's doing, and why has it come to Rome, and, and really launching into why he's going to Spain and how Rome should help him with that. Um, on his way through, he's going to stop for their help. Look at what he says in the context of talking about his mission, verse 14 of, of Romans 15. I myself am satisfied about you. He's speaking to the church at Rome, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace of God given, or the grace given me by God. Now notice this, to be a minister of who? Christ Jesus, to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by who? The Holy Spirit. He can't even talk about his, his ministry or his mission without talking about the Trinity. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Keep going. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He's speaking to the church at Corinth about coming to them, and he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. In other words, I didn't come using Greek rhetoric. I didn't come to entertain like Greek speakers do. I didn't show up like an entertainer at a dinner party trying to win you over with soaring rhetoric and entertainment. How did I come? For I decided 
to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, I came only preaching to you Jesus Christ and him crucified, the foolishness of the gospel. That's what I came preaching to you, and I was with you in weakness. That, I think, referring to his horizontal relationship. I didn't come to you in strength or power, personally, showing off my ability to use rhetoric. I came to you in weakness, and he says, and in fear and much trembling. I think that's his vertical relationship, in fear of the Lord and trembling before him. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. I didn't come in showing off my ability to make an argument, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Now that word, the spirit of power, is a hendiadus in the Greek. There's two ways of saying the same thing. It's one connected thing. In the spirit's, if you will, power. So I came preaching the Christ by the Spirit. Now look what he says. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in who? The power of God. When he talks about his own preaching evangelistically in any way, what does he talk about? Trinity. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 deals with the issue of this church being divided over holding superiority toward one another with regard to the spiritual gifts. So now he's getting into their very specific problems here. And look at verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. In other words, unless you're empowered by the Holy Spirit, you're not going to confess that. The, the, the point isn't you're not able to articulate the words Jesus is Lord. An unbeliever can do that. The point is you can't confess it as a confession of your heart on which you lean on uh, except by the Spirit of God. Now look what he goes on to say. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Even when it comes to something like the spiritual gifts and the way we interact as a church, he comes to his, the Trini his understanding of the Trinity. It undergirds all of that. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13, the very end of 2 Corinthians. Again, I'm skipping over tons of examples but 2 Corinthians chapter 13, look at his benediction, the way he signs off the church at Corinth. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, that's referring to the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Even when he blesses the church, he blesses them in a Trinitarian fashion. Speaking there really largely to um, their own roles, respectively. The things they do in the economy of salvation. The Father loved us and sent the Son for us. The Son came and purchased grace for us. The Holy Spirit also was sent by the Father and the Son and applies that to us. He unites us to the Son, fellowships with us, and indwells us. Galatians chapter 4, next book, chapter 4, as Paul's talking about and unwinding misunderstandings of justification that are happening in Galatia, look what he says, verse 4 of chapter 4, but when the fullness of time had come, in other words, the fullness of time doesn't mean when time had run out, that's talking about prophetic time, that's talking about this promise that's been made, when the fullness of time had come, this day had come, God there's the Father, sent forth his Son. Now, he, to, to send forth a Son means you are a Father. You follow that? God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. He didn't talk about our adoption and our ability to even pray to the Father without coming back to the Trinity. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. We'll come back to Ephesians 1, but look at Ephesians 4 as another example as Paul talks about the community of the church and their need to care for one another and remain united to one another. Chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ, and one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Even as he comes to the relationships that we have in the church and how we approach one another, how we care for one another, how we love one another, how we maintain unity in the spirit, in the bond of peace with one another, he can't get away from the Trinity. Listen to the Father elected that person, then who are you to cast them away? If the Son gave his life to purchase that person, who are you to say they're not worth your time? If the Holy Spirit indwelled that person, knowing they're sinful, who are you to say that you can't be in the same space with them because they're not really worthy of your attention or time? Paul can't get away from this. It's sheer arrogance to, to go there in the church community. Look at 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Just keep going. I'm skipping so much of Paul, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in what? The Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, and you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 2. We'll come back to the book of Hebrews later, but look at how, he's, how the author of Hebrews speaks of this. That's just the Apostle Paul, and that's just a brief sampling. Hebrews chapter 2, the author of Hebrews says in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now, as he's talking about don't neglect your salvation because the book of Hebrews is largely about perseverance. And so even as he deals with perseverance, he's going to come back to the Trinity over and over and over again. But how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, that's speaking of Jesus, and it was attested to us by those who heard, that's speaking of the apostles, while God also bore witness, notice the Father's bearing witness, by signs and wonders and various miracles. The Father bore witness to Christ, didn't he? The Father bore witness through the apostles to Christ. Now listen, and by gifts of the who? The Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The Holy Spirit came and bore witness. First Peter chapter 1, as the church in exile, the church whose sojourners who've gone out in the dispersion, how do you live as sojourners in this world? First Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now who's, to whom is he speaking? To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Jude, here's a book where he's contending for the faith. I've shown you some in 1 John already, so just go to Jude. Jude contending for the faith and the misuse of grace, turning grace into license to sin, even in the midst of talking about false teaching, Jude comes back to this in verse 20. But you, beloved, there's only one chapter in Jude, so if you go past it, it's quick. Verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in who? The Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, speaking of the Father, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Can't get away from it. Everywhere you go. So today, we begin with Paul's letter to Ephesus. I think that's a lot of information, and we haven't even started the text we're in. 
But I'm just going to deal with Ephesus chapter 1, verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1, sorry, verse 3. And as we're starting in this passage in Ephesians, I want you to understand that, that Paul saw the whole of salvation. The whole of salvation is built upon this foundation of the triune nature of God. Paul's entire superstructure of the faith, his whole understanding of Christian life is built upon his foundational commitment to our triune Lord. Paul doesn't spend a whole bunch of time giving us a doctrine of the Trinity as much as he assumes the Trinity as the foundation of the whole of his theology, the whole of the Christian life, and we'll see that explicitly behind all of Paul's theology. And really, we're going to be in this passage, verse 3 through verse 14, over the next four weeks, dealing with the Trinity and salvation. And as we do, we're going to see that Paul relies upon the foundation of the doctrine of the Trinity of the doctrine of Trinity in his understanding of salvation. Paul launches into praise of the Father for the whole of our Trinitarian salvation in verse 3. If you look there, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So he praises the Father for the whole of our Trinitarian salvation in verse 3, and then he praises the Father for each facet of our Trinitarian salvation in verses 4 through 14. So I want to begin with really that first contention of verse 3, that Paul is praising the Father. Paul praises the Father for the whole of our Trinitarian salvation. That's my only point today. Just going to work that out. Paul praises the Father for the whole of our Trinitarian salvation. So look with me at Ephesians 1.3. Notice how he starts. Blessed be. I'm going to stop there. Blessed be. That verb be is the controlling verb, really, of this entire um, sentence. Blessed be who? Blessed be him for what? For what reason? Etc., etc. Blessed be. Paul's just given a formal greeting to the church at Ephesus in verses 1 and 2. And now in verse 3, he breaks out in praise. He uses this word blessed. Blessed. It's the word that we get the word eulogy from in the Greek. You know, when you stand at a funeral and you give a eulogy, you thank God for this person, you praise God certain things about this person, right? And you avoid all the other things nobody really wants to talk about, but all know are true, right? And so, but you, you eulogize them. Well, in this case, he's eulogizing the Father. He's eulogizing God. Blessed be, he's praising him. He's lifting him high. He's exalting God. So, so I want to stop there because I want you to understand that, that when you get to this sentence, Verse 3 through verse 14 in Greek is one sentence. Now, in English, we break it down. But in Greek, verse 3 through verse 14 is one sentence. And if you don't read that whole sentence, if you don't read that whole sentence from verse 3 to verse 14, as Paul in worship, as Paul in praise, as Paul being doxological, glorifying God. If you don't read it that way, then you miss what he's saying in the sentence. It is tempting, though, when we come to a sentence like Ephesians 1, 3-14, a sentence that probably has the most exalted of theological language on behalf of the Apostle Paul in all the sentences he's written. As we come to that sentence, this, scholars would argue, is probably his most difficult, most doctrinally precise sentence it's tempting to walk through it as we look at the wealth of dogma contained here to lose a conscious focus that Paul's worshiping. Blessed be. He's breaking forth in worship. And one of the difficulties we have as we look at this sentence and try to break it down is it's so doctrinally precise, it's so loaded with dogma that we forget as we're looking at it and examining it and studying it and thinking it through, that he's in worship. He's praising. Stop and consider that. This may be 
the most complicated and theologically heavy, thick, rich, of, of all Paul's sentences, and yet this is Paul in praise and worship. I think we, when we come to the subject of praise, we think it's primarily about what is happening in me. If you don't believe that, then pay attention to the Facebook post I just did and the way people answered the question when I asked about praise. Largely, people answer about what's happening in them internally. How would you describe praise and worship? Well, in me, this is happening. What I'm experiencing internally, and perhaps what I'm doing in response, outwardly, to what I'm experiencing internally, raising my hands. What, I could go down the list of things. Seriously, how many of us, I mean, honestly, how many of us can really say that when I think of praise and worship, I think of being highly nuanced and exact in doctrinal precision? That's what I think of. When I think of praise and worship, I think I want to be really, really nuanced in doctrine. New Testament scholar Richard Barcelos rightly said of Paul, he was the most theological when he was the most adoring, and the most adoring when he was the most theological. It is not just that Paul's theology led to doxology or right worship. It is that Paul's doxology was necessarily deeply theological. I think we tend to approach this topic, though, in a backward sort of way. We tend to admonish ourselves and admonish others that when I study and think about theology, I should remember to worship. When I engage in that kind of detailed discussion and thought, I should remember to worship. But Paul's not coming at it from that direction. Paul's life is doxological. It's given over to right worship. He is worshiping, and for him, that necessitated that God be rightly exalted with true thoughts about him. You might think about it this way. Paul was a man who was committed to studying the word of God on his knees. It wasn't a textbook for him. It wasn't a check the box and get my devotional exercise done today. It wasn't a, you know, sort of fortune cookie Bible where I pick out a verse that I like for this part of my life right now. Okay? Honestly, I think this is what we're largely doing to the Bible. We might as well just cut the verses up, put them in fortune cookies, and every time we serve dinner, see what life verse somebody gets. That's not how he came at the Bible. It's not how he came at God's word. He got on his knees knowing he was hearing from God. And he was worshipful as he studied and thought. He was committed to the truth that all biblical doctrine, all biblical doctrine can be sung and prayed and preached. Not just some biblical doctrine, but every jot and tittle. There isn't some biblical doctrine that's very practical and be, can be preached and prayed and sung, and some biblical doctrine that's really impractical and we'll just let, that have, let the academics have at it. We tend to be biased against being serious about doctrine, though. We tend to be anti-intellectual. I think, um, I forget the name of the historian now, but one of the historians, um, Mark Knoll, wrote a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, and he actually said the scandal of the evangelical mind is that the, there is no evangelical mind. <laughs> In other words, we just, don't, we just don't care about thinking anymore. We're actually suspicious of it. We're suspect that study can make us cold and spiritually dead. And when I was in seminary, I would, I would constantly hear classmates in seminary refer to um, it as the most spiritually dry time of their lives. I, I hear folks jokingly call seminary cemetery, the place where good young pastors go to die. Listen, friends, good doctrine, putting your hand to the plow and study is not the culprit behind that. The heart of the student is the culprit behind that. I can barely express the blessing it is to me to study hard, to put my hand to the plow in doctrine. Even when I've done it in formal academic settings, 
could barely express the blessing it is to be paid full-time to be studying the Word of God. By the grace of God, during difficult times of suffering, spending my time thinking about who God is, even in serious scholastic categories, has helped me persevere in joy in the Lord. Now, I'm not saying every Christian should spend time in scholastic theology or academic theology. I don't think that. But listen, blaming the scholastics or the academics for your cold heart is placing the blame in the wrong place. That's what I want you to understand. Here's my point. By the grace of God, I have never been made cold by thinking and contemplating and considering and looking long at the Lord and His Word, and neither will you be. And Paul was not deterred by it. Paul was not deterred by the fear. If I think too hard about this, I may get cold toward the Lord. I'm going to start to stop the sentence right here. Blessed me, I'm done. I feel so much. I'm crying and raising my hand and I'm on my face. And, but I better not say it because I might get cold. Dead. Our praise ought to issue in sound doctrine being sung and preached and prayed. It should inform the whole of our worship. We, we can hide from this in our prosperity. I want you hear that. We can hide from this in our prosperity, but we know it's true when we're in the hospital and someone we love is dying or when we're standing over a coffin. How do I know that? Because I've never walked into a hospital room in which someone asked me to sing a shallow praise chorus. Now, I've never walked into a hospital room where anybody asked me to sing anything <laughs> but to bring my music guy in, right? I've never, every time, can we sing this hymn that has all this rich doctrinal content? Because I need something I can hold on to right now. When I stand over the grave of someone, it is there that people want biblical depth and gospel proclamation. They're not looking for shallow platitudes that I can stick on a bumper sticker. That stuff rings hollow in those moments, doesn't it? It rings hollow in those moments because it is hollow. And it's not just hollow in those moments. It's hollow all the time. We ought to cast it out of the church. It is at the side of a funeral that people want prayer, more prayer, and less entertainment. But somehow they walk into a worship service and we assume what they want is shallow platitudes, is little limericks that they can repeat a thousand times, and, and is lots of entertainment and very little prayer in Scripture. That may entertain them and tickle their ears for a Sunday, but it's not going to carry them through difficulty in life. And therefore, it shows its worthlessness. Now, who does Paul bless Paul or praise? Blessed be, look at the next phrase, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul blessed the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And my contention is that he is blessing the Father throughout this entire sentence. He is blessing the Father for his work in eternal election and predestination in verses 4 through 6. Notice how verse 6 begins. To the praise of his glorious grace. And speaking of the Father with which he's blessed us in the beloved. He's blessing the Father for the Son's work in the history of our redemption. Look at verses, really in verses 7 through 12. But look at how verse 12 ends. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And he's blessing the Father for the Spirit's work in contemporary application. Look at verse, 14, or verse 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Three times of the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. The Father is being blessed for the whole of our Trinitarian salvation. The Son and the Holy Spirit deserve to be praised as well. However, I want you to hear this. When their works are praised, they are praised. When the Father's praised, they are praised, for God is one. But Paul's emphasis in worship and prayer is that the Son 
gives us access to the Father by the Spirit. Look at Ephesians 2, 18. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18. We'll come back to this when we deal with the Trinity and worship, which I've sort of hit on already, but verse 18, for through Him, that's speaking of Christ, the Son, we both have access in one Spirit to who? The Father. Look at verse 22 of Ephesians 2. In Him, that's Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So he praises the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for the whole of our Trinitarian salvation. Our salvation is Christ-centered. It's through the mediation of the Son, by the power and working of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of the Father. One day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To what? The glory of God the Father. So he praises the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and, and he's blessing or praising the Father for our Trinitarian salvation. Look what he says in the rest of verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look what he says. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The Father's blessed us. He's done so how? Through or in Christ. Christ is the mediator who brings us to the Father. In, the language of in Christ or in him is speaking of union. You're united to him. Later on in this passage, you'll see him use the word through. Both can be applied to Christ. In Christ, through union with Christ. Okay? Through Christ, through the mediation of what he's done at the cross. You're blessed. Every blessing we have. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every blessing we have is in Christ. You catch that? We do not come to Christ to get our blessings, which are somewhere beyond him. You guys follow me on this? Okay? All our blessings are in him. The Father gave Christ to us, and all our blessings are in him. I think a lot of folks today think Jesus is the means to get blessings. Rather than himself being the blessing. You're united to the Son, to the Beloved. You have fellowship with the Father now, by the Spirit, through Christ. Is there a better gift than that? Is there some other blessing beyond that? The Father is being praised here for giving us gifts, but do you know what those gifts are? The Son and the Holy Spirit. Those are the gifts the Father is giving us. He's giving us the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Son who purchased our redemption. That's what he's going to go on to say in verses 7 through 12. And the Holy Spirit who applies our redemption, that's what he's going to go on and say in verses 13 and 14. And because the work of the Son and the Holy Spirit, because of their work, we receive the great blessing of fellowship with the Father, of access to the Father. Now know what kind of blessings they are. Blessed be the God and Father. So Paul is in worship, in praise, and he's praising specifically God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us. Now where are the blessings? They're in Christ, in union with him, with every, now notice this, spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now I think that, that spiritual, that word should be read as a capital S. And I think this is, the idea here is, um, these are blessings applied to us by the Spirit or the Holy Spirit. And that's why I think he's going to go down and argue because verse 3 is the con- controlling assertion, right, that verse 4 through 14 are really elaborating upon. This is spiritual blessings. The point of the contrast isn't between material blessings and spiritual blessings. We're not Gnostics. We don't somehow deny that God is going to 
give us a new heavens and new earth, and we're just going to live as little spirits who float around forever. We're not saying that all material things are evil. The point is that we have spiritual blessings, i.e., we receive these blessings by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit seals them to us. He applies the Father's blessings that are ours in Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And these are spiritual blessings, and we'll spend time on that in a few weeks when we get to the Spirit and salvation. But these, are blessing, these blessings are in the heavenly places. These blessings that we have from the Father in the Son by the Holy Spirit are found in heavenly places. So what's meant by the phrase heavenly places? Does that mean we have to wait until we get to heaven to enjoy them? Well, look at verse 20, chapter 1. talking about this work that he's worked, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So Christ, he's speaking of Christ who's raised from the dead and seated him at his right hand, where? In the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So we know the heavenly places are where Christ is seated, from where he rules and reigns. What else do we know? Because that tells us that, this, that these heavenly, these spiritual blessings are in one sense future. They're eschatological, right? They come in the end when Christ returns. In one sense, they're there because he's there. But notice in another sense, go to chapter 2. Go to chapter 2 and we'll see these blessings. And verse 6, and raised us up with him. Notice this. He's talking about this salvation we have. And God raised us up with him, that's with Christ, and seated us with him, with Christ, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, those, that language is in the past tense. When God showed mercy to you in Christ and saved you, you were seated with Christ in heavenly places. You're already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You guys catch that? You're already seated there. You say, but I don't experience that. I don't experience every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You're right. There's a sense in which that experience of all of those blessings is future. When we have glory, and the glory to be revealed to us isn't even worth comparing to the sufferings we currently participate in. But there's also a way in which we can say that we have those blessings, those, heaven, those spiritual blessings in heavenly places now because we're presently seated with Christ. Christ is ours, and all that is his is ours. Already. If we have believed in Christ, the Holy Spirit has united him to us. Thus we can say all the blessings the Father has given us in Christ and by the Holy Spirit, are already ours because Christ is already ours. And they are not yet ours in the sense that we will not fully experience all those blessings until his return. But note that Paul has barely completed one phrase of his worship, of his praise, and he has already exalted the Trinity in salvation. Now next week we're going to see how this controlling assertion in verse 3 gets elaborated on in verses 4 through 14. We're going to see that actually over three weeks, just so you're aware. I wrote one sermon on this passage, and I had to split it into four because it was that long. So there you go. But for this morning, I want to close with Paul's Trinitarian prayer that you would understand. Listen to his prayer that you would understand your Trinitarian salvation. I, I want you to see it because after he lists his own worship, look what he says in verse 15 of chapter 1. For this reason, because of I, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I want you to understand that, Paul says. The Spirit has to give you that understanding. I want you to understand your Trinitarian salvation. In Christ Jesus your Lord, by the Holy Spirit, from your gracious Father. He prays again in verse 14 of chapter 3. This is really the prayer we've prayed for this church since we, from the time we began. And I want to conclude with this prayer. Because it is our prayer for you. It, it was a year before we planted this church and it continues to be. Verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would understand and rejoice in you, our Father, for our Trinitarian salvation. It's not a salvation that we deserved, but it's a salvation that comes from you, our Father, through the mediation of your Son in union with Him, by the working of your Holy Spirit who unites us to Him through faith. We are thankful for this great blessing. We pray that as we walk through this passage in coming weeks that we would understand as a church that salvation belongs to the Lord. Our triune Lord. And that that would lead us to praise Lead us to pray and sing and proclaim. Lead us to being in your word. Lead us to thanksgiving. Lead us to suffering for the sake of the gospel being made known where it is not. So that Christ would be named where he is not. Your spirit would move in the hearts among those of where he's named. And you, Father, would be exalted through it all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.